Submission 4 from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 to 9 and this is part 23 in our series, an, an epistle to the Ephesians. So we find ourselves in the last chapter of Ephesians and for the last three weeks, if you have been following us, we have been touching on the subject of submission. Uh, what it means and how it is applied in our various relationships. In particular, the Apostle Paul has dealt with the relationships within the, the household or the, the wider household. And as you know, in, in, the, in the first century, the household, it was mum, dad, the kids, the slaves, servants, everybody. That was the household. And yes, and our kids, I think, are leaving for kids' church. So thank you, children and, and, and leaders. Um, and now the Apostle Paul comes to the relationship between masters and slaves. But remembering that the most important thing in, when it comes to all of these relationships that we have is our relationship with the Lord. So that is, that is the overall thing that we need to keep in mind whenever we discuss these matters of, of submission. So while slavery today that we'll be talking about is illegal, what we will try and do is build a bridge so that we can apply these principles to the workplace and our interactions between bosses and workers and, and fellow workers. So we need to know something about slavery in the first century. So although slavery was occasionally, occasionally was practiced in, in Israel, it was never widespread and it was certainly very well regulated in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. So for example, one could sell themselves into slavery if they had a debt that they could not repay. And once that they've worked for their debt, then they were free from, from slavery. By contrast, the Roman Empire and its economy was built on slave labour. In Paul's day, slavery had uh, virtually eclipsed free labour. It's much easier, I suppose, if you're, if you're a farmer or if you're a businessman, whatever, um, it's easier to have Slaves that you don't have to pay, you just feed them and, and, and provide a, some shelter for them and then the rest of the work is, is for free. But if you're paying somebody else, then obviously that has to come out of your pocket. And every time that the Romans conquered a new province, they added new slaves to the empire. Most of their conquests were in Europe, around Palestine, northern Africa. And this means that the majority of slaves were white or olive skins, uh, while blacks or sub-Saharan Africans, uh, Africans were in the minority. In other words, the ancient institution of slavery did not discriminate on the basis of race, or skin colour, or class, or education. And, and scholars tell us that um, 
at the time when Paul wrote this, that the, there were about six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Some others say, give higher figures, but let's, let's, it's around about the six to six million slaves. So let's look at a little bit at the institution of slavery and, and, and look at it from the bad side. The bad side is that Roman law provided very little protection for slaves because they were regarded as property. They weren't thought of as people. It was not unusual for a rich man to own as many as 10,000 slaves. And owners could mistreat their slaves and even kill them with little or no ramifications. Especially runaway slaves like uh, Onesimus, who was in the, in, in the book of Philemon. Um, people like him were often put to death as, as a warning to others, so they don't think about running away. But there is another, there is a better side to, to slavery. The masters that treated their slaves well found that they were, their slaves were more productive. It was not uncommon for a master to teach a slave his own trade. And some masters and slaves became very close friends. The slaves were part of the family. Most slaves were not uh, uneducated, but they were, a lot of them were very well educated. They were doctors, musicians, they were teachers, artists, librarians, accountants. In short, almost all the jobs could be and were filled by slaves. It also became more common um, for slaves to, to be granted or to purchase their freedom. Let's also not forget that slavery was very much a part of the social structure, the social security system. So within the household, these slaves, their health and other things will be looked after by their master. It was was part of the social security system of the day. Therefore, some slaves were actually better off as part of a large household because they were assured food, care and protection. While some of them who were, who were free, um, they, had, they struggled. They struggled to find work and they struggled in poverty and in insecurity. But there is a, not just a bad and a better, but there is also the Christian side that we need to consider. And one of the things that I think many times uh, I've been asked and, and maybe you yourself have been asked is why is it that slavery is not condemned in the Bible? Isn't slavery wrong in the eyes of God? And uh, questions like these have troubled Christians throughout the centuries. And we find ourselves now uh, 2,000 years uh, removed from that particular situation. In short, we can say that slavery was so commonplace and so accepted that no one opposed it. The early church grew largely amongst the slaves and the free. And to have done so, uh, to have resisted slavery, 
would have caused tremendous upheaval and revolution. It certainly wasn't ignored, and this is why Paul wrote in his letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon, addressing this very delicate subject both to the slaves and to the masters that we're going to look at. So even though the the Bible never directly attacks, attacks the institution of slavery, it does set the roadmap that something that the, the tremendous change that would happen 1800 years later. As one of the scholars, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, points out, and I quote, he says, What this epistle does is to bring us into an atmosphere into which the institution could only wilt and die. That is the institution of slavery. Because a true Christian faith seeks to reform by love and not by force. And it was Christians, it was exactly the involvement of Christians who led the way, like Wilberforce and others, who led the way to eventually abolish the institution of slavery. There's a wider issue here, of course, and that is the nature of work, because that is what we're talking about. Going back to the garden, uh, God created us to work, even before the fall. And, and this principle is applied not just to mankind, but to living creatures as well. There's a saying that, that goes something like, uh, God gives the birds their food, but he doesn't throw it into their nests. Right? Unfortunately, because of the fall, the nature of work change. Work became burdensome. The curse had set in. The ground resists the work that we do. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat your bread. But the principle of God's plan is still there. That we need to work and and, and being able to work is, is part of what makes us humans. It's part of our identity. So let's look at this passage then and, and try and, and break it down. So let's, uh, we're going to read first from verse in Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to read from verses 5 to 8. And first of all, he addresses the slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. It's interesting when you think about it that the the Bible has a lot more to say to slaves than it does to masters and lords and kings. And I believe that the reason for this is that the the group that responded most readily to the gospel were actually the, the lower classes, the class of the slaves, the poor. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 
He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And this wasn't just in Corinth. But most Christians were probably found in the lower socio-economic brackets of the time. Something that is definitely true today as the gospel uh, is flourishing in the poorer parts of our world. Now there are some important aspects that are brought up in these verses that we need to consider. First of all, the aspect of obedience. It says here, obey your masters, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. The respect and the fear is not to be directed towards your boss. He may be a terribly unjust man. The respect and fear is directed towards Christ, who is behind your boss, on top of your boss. And the expression is is used elsewhere by Paul, who speaks of a a, a deep sense of humility and of dependence on, on God. As someone said, there is an element of fear which enters in all relationships when their essential sacredness is realised. There is a sacredness behind submission. More of that shortly. 1 Peter 2.18 says this, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. First God, and under God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, why did, why did Paul have to say this, and, and, the, and, and Peter and others say this? Because it's very likely that there had been some, he's addressing some slaves who were being disobedient to their masters. And they brought shame to the name and the testimony of the Lord Jesus because of the disrespectful behaviour. You got slaves? Yeah, I got slaves. Are they Christians? Yeah. They're not very good at all, are they? Look up. Yeah, no. And so this is why Paul would later write to Timothy and instructed him to tell the slaves in his own congregation And he writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 1. He says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be, what? Slandered. Think about your testimony. It's hard, isn't it? I'll I'll draw a bridge 2,000 years later. A good... Christian friend of mine had a had a company overseas. He employed fifty about fifty people, and uh, I spoke to him once and I asked him, "Did you have many Christians working for you in your company?" And he said, and this was his response: He says, "Yes, and I regretted every one of them." And I was certainly saddened because 
this is, this is not the way it should be, right? Christians should be the best, the best workers out there. And maybe this was a, a problem in the early church, and that's why Paul went on to tell Timothy in the following verse, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 2, he says, Those who have, uh, these are the slaves, those who have believing masters, so you're a Christian slave and you have a Christian master, those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers, they are brothers in Christ. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Seems like this issue has been going on for a while, right? So firstly, the issue of obedience. Secondly, the issue of sincerity. And this statement of sincerity behind the word sincerity is, is, is made in four different times in, in these verses. What does sincerity of heart mean? It means without divided loyalty. They should pay full attention to the job at hand. What's more is that the the Bible never makes a distinction between the secular and the spiritual. You can't say, this is my work life and this is my church life. This is business, this is... This is my faith. And you separate the two. The Bible does not allow you to do that. It's a consistent life all the time. So your employment, your menial task, whatever it may be, is first and foremost unto Christ. And Paul is also saying here that we are all in full-time service for the Lord. Because another issue that we have is that we we seem to have, when we talk about service, we say, well, I'm a full-time servant. You're a pastor, you're a missionary, you're in full-time service. No. It doesn't matter whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. We're all in full-time service for the Lord. All we do should be to glorify him. And it should be with the purpose to win those around us, to be good witnesses, to win the lost. Whether it's a task right up here in higher management or whether it's a task that the world considers a very lowly task, it should all be done as a song of praise to God who is over everything. Thirdly, the issue of integrity. The Apostle is putting his finger on the, the attitudes that are, are found so frequently in the workplace environment. Um, outwardly, the, the ungodly servant may appear to be obedient, but his spirit is in constant rebellion. So when his master is not present or when he is not looking, the slave slacks up on his work. 
The best the master can hope from his ungodly slave is begrudging, grumbling service. There was, um, I like the story of the sign in the store window which read on the window, on the front it says, No help wanted. And as two men passed by, one said to the other, You should apply, you'd be great at that. There's another interesting story in Australian history, actually, that uh, the first Governor-General of Australia was a man by the name of Lord Hopeton. And one of his most cherished possessions, uh, he was Governor-General at the turn of uh, Roundabout Federation, the 1900s. uh, About 1900, actually. And one of his most prized possessions was a 300-year-old ledger he had inherited from John Hope, one of his ancestors back in England. And Hope, uh, on Scotland, and Hope owned a business in Edinburgh where he first used this old ledger. And when Lord Hopeton received it, or inherited it, he noticed that he had inscribed on its front page, on the front page of this ledger, he had inscribed the words, O Lord, keep me and this book honest. It's good, isn't it? There's no two ledgers, there's only one ledger. We're going to be honest. I'm sure in the early church there were situations where both the boss and the slaves went to the same church. Around the table, in church, in fellowship, they were brothers in Christ. What happens when they left church and they went back to the household? What happened then? The fact that both of them were Christians was actually no excuse for either of them to take advantage of the other, is there? And there is a lack of integrity when the worker is out to win the boss's favours. There are expressions that I cannot use from the pulpit because, you know, the expressions that come. But it's usually, you, you get the meaning of the word, it's usually got to do with toting up to the boss Paying office, you know, playing office politics or buttering him up, you know. The other bad practice that the apostle mentions here is working hard only when the boss is watching, and then when the boss is away, slacking off. Let me tell you that having worked on the factory floor. I know how easy it is for us to fall into this. But the Lord expects better from us as believers. We need to settle it once and for all in your heart and mind that you are not there merely to please the boss. You are there to please the boss of bosses, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, in what you do. And fourthly, which leads into the next one, which is the motivation. What is the ultimate motivation? Uh, well, you might recall the old expression which said, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Because for a vast majority 
of us, the, the best motivation to go to work is that we've got to pay bills. We've got to pay for the food. We've got to, we have to pay for the loans. We have to pay for the car, education, health, and so on. It goes. Yet, yet the Apostle Paul lifts us up from our everyday struggles and small motivations, whatever they may be, to the ultimate reward, which says the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. That is the ultimate motivation, isn't it? That we will receive the reward from the Lord. And the ultimate motivation is not how much money we will earn or the lifestyle we maintain while here on earth, but how are we going to honour the Lord in that position? And so the slave who is also a Christian learns not to look at his earthly rewards from his earthly master, but from his heavenly master. The Christian worker looks for the ultimate reward not in his retirement plans or his pay packet or in his possessions, but looks beyond all of that to the ultimate reward in heaven. All that we have we're going to have to leave behind. You knew that, right? And there is no promise in these verses that you will be freed from your poor conditions that we might find ourselves in. Because we need to understand that there is, in Australia there is, people talk about poverty and humble conditions and destitute and all of that. But let me just say that what what a minimum standard is in Australia, in other parts of the world, is an absolute luxury. Uh, nowadays, some of the older generation and some of us, there are many of us here who have grown up in different parts of the world. Let me be honest, and I sometimes hear the definition of poverty in Australia, and I get a bit of a chuckle. And people say, well, that's rude, Paul, how can you laugh at the definition of poverty. It's poverty. It's social justice and it goes on and on. You just don't understand. Oh, I understand. Definition of a, of a poverty in Australia is a family living in a home with no running water, no electricity, no car, an outside toilet is defined as poor. Yeah, that's exactly the same definition of a place where I grew up in. I was like, yeah, that's, that's what my, my childhood was like. You know, when I told you that I went, I went outside and looked at the moon and there was man landing on the moon and there I was outside, that was exactly the situation I grew up in. And many of you here are the same. Some of the older Australians know exactly what I'm talking about. The outhouse and all of that, right? No running water, no sewerage. And that's defined as property, as, as poverty today. 
But the fact that we, have, we may have been materially deprived, let's call it that. I remember my childhood and uh, growing up in a Christian home, the fact that we didn't have very much, it was no hindrance to us being happy and contented and thankful to God for everything we had. For the food on the table, for the love that surrounded the preparation of the food and for the company that we shared both at home and at church. We understood, we appreciated every bit of it and that were some of the happiest days of my life. And decades later, when I have been blessed materially, We started to realise, some of you have been the same, and when I talk about me, I'm talking about you as well. We have discovered that um, having more things doesn't necessarily bring more happiness. In fact, it's not related at all. It brings more comfort, being some type of security, whatever you want to call it, but not necessarily more, you know, less worries or a more happy, contented life. In fact, the more you have, the more worries you tend to have. Have you paid that bill? Have you paid the insurance? Oh, no! You've got to do the maintenance on the car. So on and so forth. Spurgeon once said, It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness, he said. And for him and for us, that ultimate joy has to come from outside of our material possessions. It has to come from outside. It has to come from the Lord who blesses us in so many different ways. So that is our ultimate motivation, isn't it? Next, the Apostle Paul addresses masters, verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favouritism with him. Now the Roman Empire would have been a very different place if every slave owner had used his position to the benefit of the slaves. But we knew, we knew that that wasn't the case. Because we know that the problem with any authority is that it tends to be abused. And those who are not Christians tend to abuse it even more because, as the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is why the Apostle Paul addresses the masters who are now Christians, that they should first and foremost submit themselves to God. And so he calls for a new set of attitudes and actions which sets the Christian masters apart from all the others around them. It has to. So when Paul calls masters to treat their slaves in the same way, he is calling for integrity, sincerity, not taking advantage of them. And what he has said previously to slaves is now applicable to masters as well because both slave and master, they are 
under the same master, the same Lord, the same Saviour, to whom they will ultimately give account to. And because of this, we are all in ultimate submission to Christ. And there is a specific command here given to masters. He says, do not threaten them. It looks like threatening your, your slaves or your servants would have been a very common practice among slave owners. And, and unfortunately it continues to, to this day. I, um, years ago, um, I know you might struggle to understand this, but in, in the 80s, particularly in the early 80s, it was really hard to find work in Australia, especially for a young man, you know, 18, 19 at the time. Um, it, was, it wasn't easy. And so you, could, you just had to find a job, whatever you could do, really, uh, after leaving high school. And uh, it was uh, one of the, the jobs I did was uh, at a, in Alexandria, Redfern, around that area there, as, um, as a picture frame maker. I, I went into this place and I got a job finally, advertiser, you know, the newspaper, you went there. And, and I worked there for a week and the boss was so bad. Like, he was just absolutely horrible. He used to be mean to you and, and, and just tell you off and swear at you and, and it's just, you're hopeless and threatening you, you know, you're not going to last here, whatever, and all this. It's just a horrible condition to be working in, you know. I remember it because it's clear in my mind. And I, and in the end, by the time it was, this was, this was, I started on Monday, by the time Friday came, I was so, you know, I had enough. I actually, I quit. I didn't go back to work. I didn't get my wage for the week. I just left the place. I, I didn't care about the money. I just said, this is terrible. How can anybody work in these conditions? Thankfully, God gave me another job later on and it was in Hume Doors there in Lansdale and that was the work environment and that was a lot better. Uh, thank God for that. But in the end, I decided to go back to study and, and continue my, my career. But it was enough for me to understand that it's, it's, in some places it's pretty tough. You guys have to put up with, with a lot. And uh, even if you own your own business, it's not just about answering to the boss, but suddenly the customer, the person you are serving, becomes your boss. And they can become very demanding. Right? You know, the whole thing about the customer is always right? Well, that's not true. <laughs> you probably found that out pretty quickly as well, right? But there is an incentive. There is a high incentive in, in how we live our lives particularly when we understand that we have a certain amount of authority, whether it's in the, the marriage, whether it's as a parent, or whether it's in the workforce. That there is somebody above all of us, and that is our Lord. And, and we need to set an example. In Proverbs 29.19 we read, Servants cannot be corrected by mere words. Though they understand, they will not respond, says Proverbs. 
It's not mere words. You can just, because mere words can become nothing. You need to follow it with your example, with your life. And one primary cause of employee discontent is to be constantly putting up with the threat of dismissal or some kind of retribution like uh, demotion and things like this in order to motivate the employees to do more work. This does nothing but creates resentment, bitterness, even rebellion uh, in the employees' hearts. Creates more problems than it solves. So the relationship between a Christian employer and their employees must not be one of threatening and stuff like that. It does not mean that you can't dismiss someone because they're not doing their, their work or they, they're always sick and you, know, you have a business to run. It doesn't mean that. But they need to be treated. We all want to be treated justly and fairly. And when the Apostle Paul says Christ is in heaven, it, it doesn't mean that he's out there somewhere in outer space, you know, 13 billion light years away. That's not what he's saying. Heaven is that invisible spiritual kingdom that surrounds us all. Therefore, the whole of life is to be lived with the awareness that the Lord's watching eye is right here. He's with us. He's not out there, he's here. Finally, brothers and sisters, as as we conclude our our mini-series within our larger series on, on on the subject of submission, let's just emphasize that submission and obedience goes beyond the surface level. It's very easy to show submission in public when others see you, whether at church or the home or in other places where kids pretend that they submit to their parents and wives to their husbands and people to their pastors and stuff. But what happens when nobody's looking? What happens then? Submission goes beyond mere words and appearances, but to the way that we live our lives. It has to. It has to. And let's also remember that the chief end of our salvation is the glory of God and not our happiness. It is unfortunate, especially in the times in which we live, this is both in Australia, it's in Africa, in South America, in North America, wherever it is, wherever the gospel is preached many times, um, it is represented, the gospel is sold almost in that God is going to bless you and it's going to make you happy and it's going to give you a lot of things. God is like a Santa Claus. The God purpose is for your you know, for your pleasure. That's why he's doing all of this. No, it's not. God's main purpose in all of this is to bring glory to his name. And if that means sending his son to suffer and die on a cross, that's what he will do. And he did. If that means that he will send his disciples and apostles to suffer in prison, and many other millions of Christians around the world are going through it. And through that be glorified, then he will do that. 
Because often God chooses to glorify himself through suffering. Please understand that. Therefore, may our lives, whether it's with much or whether it's with little, whether it's with health or whether it's in sickness, whether it's in abundance or with very little at all, we are going to give him glory, right? Right? Because all that we have, all that we are, belongs to him. And may God be glorified in and through us. Amen.